I'm back. We uh, spent uh, nine days, I feel like, a long time. We spent a long time in Texas. We got uh, down there, and it was about 40 degrees and raining, I think, for most of the time. And so we thanked them uh, vociferously for bringing us into our own climate. We thanked them for bringing the Ohio climate down, and then we came back, and it was like 85 degrees yesterday. So I don't know what's happening. Everything got reversed, but we're glad to be back. I'm glad to be here. Today, we're starting a brand new series on the book of Jude. Uh, I said a few weeks ago that if you wanted to make your New Year's resolution, I'm going to read through an entire book of the Bible. Um, You can do it in about 15 minutes if you read the book of Jude. It's one uh, chapter. It's 461 words, but they are packed with practical insight. And so what we're going to do is spend the next four weeks um, picking apart 461 words. And we're going to have a whole lot more to say about it, but I think it will be uh, deeply practical. I think it will be uh, actually really insightful as we make our way through uh, the new season that is in front of us. So in order to do that, I just want to start by reading it. We're going to start by reading the first seven verses. I'll put it up on the screen so you can read it with me. If you don't have a Bible or you don't, uh, you know someone who needs one, there's always a whole shelf of Bibles, blue, uh, out there on the, in the foyer. And so you can always pick one of those up. They are free for you. Take one if you want one. Let's get started. The Bible says, Jude, who's writing this, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy and peace and love be yours in abundance. This is a, a greeting. He says, Dear friends, in verse 3, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whom condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Happy New Year, eternal fire. So he starts, Jude starts this with a a greeting. He greets the people. He's sending this to the people who uh, follow Christ. And he tells them, I felt compelled, even though I wanted to write you about salvation and all kinds of flowery things, I felt compelled to urge you to contend for the faith. The point of this letter is right there in that the point of the letter is he's wanting to tell people to contend for the faith. He feels compelled to urge people, hey, this is all well and good. We have a faith that we've been given. We have a grace that we've been given. And yet there's something greater that we're to do with it. Contend. To contend for something means there has to naturally be adversity that goes with it. You don't contend against nothing. You, you have to contend against something. And so the questions we're kind of asking today is where does this uh, adversity come from and how do we overcome it? Admiral William McRaven uh, was, uh, I don't know, he's an admiral. He's in the Navy. He was a SEAL. And for uh, 37 years, he served as a really high-ranking. He kind of made his way up, and he served as a high-ranking official. He eventually was the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, related to the Navy and uh, over the SEAL teams, and he had special ops. He uh, eventually, in 2011, became the commander, not only the one who carried it out, but the one who basically created the entire bin Laden raid that eventually went into Pakistan and killed Osama bin Laden. He had uh, an incredible resume. And a few years ago, he gave a speech, a commencement speech at the University of Texas. And it went viral. Everybody loved it. Millions and millions of people have watched it. And out of that, somebody said, well, why don't you just put it into a book form so we could uh, get it out there? He did so. And I think last year it was probably the most gifted book uh, from me to anyone else. I gave a lot of these books out. His book was called Make Your Bed which is about as scintillating as it sounds. 
but there are really practical things he learned in training to be a SEAL uh, that he wanted to give away to everyone. And I've read it a couple times, and I've given it away, like I said, more times than I can count. One story he tells is as a, in SEAL training, all of the recruits were given this, uh, this group. Each group was, was kind of divided up into little smaller groups of five or six, and they were each given a big, bulky rubber raft. And it had to go with them everywhere. It was uh, cumbersome, and it was difficult to deal with. And so when you had to go to breakfast, your group had to get around, and you had to carry your giant rubber, bulky raft over the highway. Uh, they're near San Diego. They had to go over the highway and then into the, the mess hall and have breakfast. And you had to find a place to stash it. And then when you were done with breakfast, you had to pick it up and carry it back over. And when it was time to take it to the next training spot, you had to carry it through the sand dunes. And then you had to go into the ocean with it and paddle together against the surf. It was this group's responsibility. Each group had their own. It says inevitably over the course of this training, someone is exhausted. Someone has the flu. Someone has a stomach bug. And, and what happens is everyone else has to pick up the slack. So everyone else carries more weight that day or paddles a little bit harder. And the lesson that he gives away in the book is, is you can't paddle alone. It, you can't do life alone. That you and I, I think for our purposes, we each carry our own paddle through life. Each of us is given a paddle and we, we carry that. That's our responsibility. And yet as part of the church, we have something greater that we are a part of. Uh, the mission that hangs on the wall is the mission that we're actually dedicated to do every day around here to, to know others. I mean, to know Jesus and make him known. And so if we're going to know Jesus and make him known, that becomes our raft that we carry together. And so here we go. On the stream of life, there's opposition at uh, every turn. We are uh, an upstream type of community. For a believer, life is an upstream journey. That you and I don't have uh, the privilege of just floating with the current. That you and I actually, as part of people who have a real mission and a real life, we have to contend by, by paddling upstream. We paddle against the current of culture. And Jude is saying that we even have people occasionally in the raft paddling the wrong direction. Commentaries on Jude almost always mention the word licentious. You know, you, uh, there are certain regulations about driving a car. You can't drive a car unless you have a what? License. Okay, so that's the idea. There's, there's regulations and restrictions, but a license gives you freedom to do the thing. And so the, the commentaries all, always use this word licentious because there, it says a couple times you have license. People have taken license and liberty you have total freedom and grace. And so what the scripture says in verse 4 is they've perverted the grace of our God into a license for immorality. That there are those among us that are those that are in the raft with us that are paddling the wrong way. That they've confused what God intended for grace. It's subtle stuff. And also this word pervert or perversion comes up twice. And it's, uh, the Greek is uh, metatitemai. And I looked it up because I feel like we, uh, we spend a lot of time, when we see that word, we kind of go, oh, here we go. Because in our culture, uh, perversion has built-in sexual connotations, and yet it didn't have that here. While that's mentioned, and so that type of sin is definitely not excluded from what he's talking about, this is uh, simply about the transfer of a good thing to a thing it wasn't intended for, or deserting the cause that was, it was created for, deserting that and taking it and making it something else. It's, a, it's just a change. So perverting grace doesn't just mean stuff in sexual realms. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. It just means anything that God has created for one thing, and we twist it, we change it, we transfer it onto some other idea with our own agenda. So it's um, clear, perversion almost always, then, when you see it in Scripture, refers to a good thing that's been twisted. We desert the true meaning, and we stall our own. I saw a commercial this last week. It was really disturbing to me. I called the Naked Chicken Chalupa from Taco Bell. 
Maybe you've seen the naked chicken chalupa from Taco Bell. Let me explain it to you briefly. It is a round piece of fried chicken shaped like a taco shell. Just the chicken. That is the shell. And then inside the shell, there's some sort of sauce thing with some lettuce and some cheese and some tomato. And that's the naked chicken taco. It's, there is no taco. It's just a curvy piece of fried chicken around the insides of a taco. To me, this is wildly frustrating, terribly offensive, deeply sinful. As any good South Texas person would know, a chalupa is actually flat. It's on a tostada. So if you have a chalupa, it's literally just the flat fried shell with beans on it. And that's about it. That's a chalupa. So the first thing they've done is they've perverted chalupa and they've made it into a taco shape. Strike one. Second thing, they've perverted a taco, which is not shaped or which is not made out of chicken, but actually has some other sort of like grain-based holders. They've perverted tacos, strike two. And then who doesn't like fried chicken? No one on earth. Fried chicken is the greatest thing God has ever invented. And they have perverted that, and they've somehow flattened it into a circle shape and made it into a taco delivery system, which on one hand sounds really tasty, but is totally a perversion of what fried chicken was supposed to be. Do we get the idea that perversion can be many things? They have taken many ideas and in a naked chicken taco have perverted all of the original goodness that God created tacos for. Okay. On a meta level, grace and freedom, grace and freedom get twisted. And on a smaller scale, verse 7, it's seen in specific areas of sin. And so we can say, hey, grace and sin have been, uh, grace has been twisted. It's been perverted into something it's not supposed to be. It creates license. And then on a, on a more micro level, we can start looking at all the little places where, where good things have been kind of just barely twisted to be something that God didn't intend them for. There's a danger that, uh, that's there that, that those who live as they've unlocked a cheat code in life begin to experience in this licentiousness. In the 80s, in video games, there used to be cheat codes, and there were specific things you had to press as you turned the game on, and it would unlock unlimited lives. And so, uh, I don't remember the game, I think it was Contra or Zelda or something, and you press left, right, left, right, up, down, up, down, A, B, A, B, start, right when the, the menu was coming up. And if you did that, it didn't say anything. It's just when you start playing the game, you have unlimited lives. And so you can be as risky as you want and die as many times as you want in the game. And your game never says game over. You just have unlimited life. There's a cheat code. Some people, I would argue, treat grace like a cheat code. Like, well, I can do whatever I want. I live all the risk. I got unlimited life. I got eternal life. So we live life as if we have a, a cheat code, as if there's no such thing as a game over screen. And I would argue that that's not really an option that God gives us with grace. It's an option we can take, but it's not one he gave us for our flourishing. Jesus came to bring freedom from our sin. That is true. So we do have eternal life. That is true. And his grace is total. That's true. But his desire for us is to live a new life. That flourishing is not in living the same life with, uh, with no penalty, but living a whole new life entirely. So you can eat naked chalupas, but is that the best thing for you? Tim Keller says it this way. He says, in many areas of life, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. I love when Tim Keller talks about the liberating restrictions because it gives grace a whole new meaning. Grace is not the absence of guardrails on the mountain switchback. Grace is actually the presence of the guardrails on the mountain switchback. They're restrictive, though. If you think about driving up the tight mountain switchbacks, or maybe worse, driving down, and you see oncoming traffic, and then there's the, the logging truck that rumbles by, and, and you start gripping the wheel a little bit tighter, and you think, gosh, this could go really wrong. The guardrails restrict you from plunging over the cliff to your doom. 
And yet no one would say those are bad restrictions. No one would say that those are, those are anti-grace or that's anti-freedom or that. We would say that actually preserves freedom. That thing is there for our benefit and for our flourishing. So the same is true. If you're saved by Jesus, you're eternally secured. And the grace of Jesus covers our sin. The grace of Jesus then becomes the guardrails in our life. It gives us the liberating restrictions that we need. And yes, it covers. So this isn't like you can't sin and you can't mess up and you can't slip. And if you do, you weren't saved. That's not true. Once saved, always saved, if saved. So a little gossip, it's covered. Extra drink, it's covered. And yet when we desire it deep in our hearts, it's a heart condition. When we desire the guardrails to be moved, when we desire to live a road without the stripes in between the lines, and we just want to do whatever we want, what we end up with is disaster. So many believers end up in a flaming heap at the bottom of the cliff because we just can't get used to the idea that the, the presence of grace is not the absence of restriction. Jude is saying, this is not what grace is all about. You went from seeking freedom from sin and death to seeking freedom from your freedom. And this is very common for us today. Jude says, you went from seeking freedom from sin and death to seeking freedom from your freedom. That God gave you a whole new freedom, and now that feels restrictive, and you go, I don't want that either. Now there's this whole other set of things I'm supposed to do. Romans 6 is, is good with this. It says, so in freedom with Jesus, with this Jesus cheat code, we just get to sin, just abuse grace, do whatever we want. Paul says, surely not. Paul says, grace intends to usher you into a whole new life, not to allow you to continue walking in, and living in the old life with fewer consequences. And that's the big difference. Grace is not the old life with different consequences. Grace is a new life entirely. So Jude warns this. Jude gives us this, this concept that life is already an upstream paddle. So he says, be careful with those in the raft with you that are paddling against you and you don't even know it. Second, he says, be careful of the current. There's this underlying thing that that Jude speaks about with regards to the culture, that life is an upstream paddle. Because the prevailing current of our culture, does that go with biblical Christianity? Does that go with a biblical worldview? The prevailing current of our culture, the same as the prevailing culture of Jude's uh, day. That current is going away from a biblical worldview. Sometimes that's obvious for us. Sometimes it's super clear that you can see a, a premature baby born and go, what a miracle, and look... They can survive, and they're sucking their thumb, and, they're, and you can say, gosh, yeah, life, life, is, life begins at conception. That's, that seems really clear, that when God puts a life into the world, we've got to leave that alone. And abortion is an abhorrent thing that we have to fight against. That one's a clear one. But then there's others that get gray in the nuance of what's happening, and we don't always know, is this one of those? Is this super clear? Because my Christian friend believes something different than I do, and sometimes it starts getting, it starts getting a little messy, And what that does, and that subtlety, it teases you to let your guard down. When you know what truth is, and you start hearing alternate versions of truth that just don't sound quite right. The first time I went fishing on the Maumee River, uh, on the banks of the Maumee River, which I will tell you is an interesting experience. For someone used to Texas rivers, which are skinny but deep, uh, this was a wide but shallow river, and I lost many allure on the, uh, on the bottom of the river. And yet what I, what I learned being on the bank was there was a really deceptive thing about the Maumee River. It flows north, which is rare in general for a northern hemisphere river. It flows north. But, but when you're on the banks, often the current is coming south for about five, ten, eight, eight feet or so. You'll, you'll see the current is actually, you'll watch leaves on the top of the water and they're, they're flowing south. And then they hit the eddy, and in the eddy they do the little spin, and then they race out when they hit the, the prevailing current, and then they race north with all the rest of the water. And so you can throw a line. If you don't throw it far enough, your lure can actually just barely float south for a while until it hits that slipstream and the current takes it back north. 
And this is really common with Christianity, where we find ourselves with these eddies all over culture, where we're invited in to go, hey, look, you know, maybe it's actually going the other way, and maybe you should consider going that way with them. And as soon as you kind of let your guard down and you go, huh, well, maybe I don't have to paddle after all. We're all floating the same direction. Then you slipstream right into the current, and before you know it, you're further downstream than you ever thought. Culture will reorient our priorities and our agenda. Cultural uh, agendas and priorities will then reorient our moral worldview, which is how you have loved ones and friends, and you go, I think we believe the same thing, but how do we believe such different stuff on these things that seem so clear to me? Culture disciples us. When we are not vigilant, when we're passive in life, when our paddle is down by our side, culture will disciple us and we will go with the current of culture. There's great Christian role models out there. Russell Wilson is a quarterback, espouses Christianity, seems to do a pretty good job of it. Joanna Gaines is uh, the decorator extraordinaire on HGTV and also evangelical Christian. Great role models. They're all over. We have all these different people in culture that we find that we go, oh, well, I'm going to follow that person because they seem to have it figured out. And it's not wrong to have uh, heroes of the faith that are among us. But what happens when they get caught in the current of culture, which we see every time we put our faith in a person on earth, is we see that they get caught in the current of culture, and then when they get on that slipstream and all of a sudden they're downstream, we go, wait a minute. And the confusion begins is, am I following Jesus or am I following this person? Because this person says that this thing that I thought was not okay is now okay, and I don't know what to do. And it happens all the time. It's like a filter placed between us and Christ. It's as if we're holding tethers. And we have an option to take our rope and tether it to, to Jesus, and Jesus, and, and the scripture, and the word, and we can tether our, 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 our rope there, and that can be our, our main line. Or we put our paddle down, and we go, gosh, that's a lot of work to have my own relationship with Jesus. And we begin to tether ourselves to people to their left and right of us. And they don't have to be uh, celebrities. They can be uh, pastors. And we, we start tethering ourselves to the people to the left and right of us, and they end up being like filters that, that the light of Christ has to pass through others to get to us. And it begins to dim the thing we're supposed to be following in the first place. Every filter between you and Jesus begins to dim the light, like every bit of distance dims the light. The stars in the night sky are just a distant twinkle. They're so gentle. Stars in the night sky are burning balls of gas that if you got close enough would burn your retinas, incinerate your corneas. They're wildly violent things, but if you put enough space and time between you, put enough filters between you and a star, it's just a mere twinkle in the sky. And the same thing is true when we begin to tether ourselves to anything other than Christ, we begin to put filters between us and the light of Jesus. And so now we're looking at Jesus through you and you and you because you're following her and she's following him and he's following her and now they're following Jesus. So I'm just going to do what you guys tell me to. And all of a sudden it's, it's all obfuscated and you can't figure out what you're actually looking at. Celebrities don't have their own light. They are a dim reflection of an original light. Culture doesn't have its own light. It's a dim perversion of a greater light. Your pastor does not have his own light. He is a dim reflection of Jesus. And so each of us is required to take our rope and tie it to Christ first lest we get swept up in the eddy of personality only to realize you've been dragged downstream. So Jude says, contend for the faith. Fight. Our illustration, our, our analogy, if Jude says fight, that means actively paddle. You are actively working. Once we went kayaking in the ocean in the Gulf of, Gulf of Mexico, and my father and I thought this was going to be a good idea, and we put our kayaks in, and we start paddling out, and the first 
12 waves or so, the first 12 big breakers just knocked us over, and we're like, we've got to figure this out. So we go back on the beach. We go, okay, here's how you're going to do it. You turn this way. You go into the thing. And so now we get it going, and we're like, hey, this isn't so bad. It's a lot of work because the ocean is this thing that just keeps trying to throw us out of it. But let's keep going. And, and about 15 minutes up, we look up, and I'm like, hey, where's the car? And it's a mile and a half down the beach, and we've just been paddling straight out, and we're about 10 feet off the, off the beach at this point, but a mile and a half over. And the current had just slowly ripped us away from where we thought we were going. Eventually, we conquered that, and we put our kayaks back on the car, and we went on the other side of the barrier island, so it's more like a bay, and then there was no current, and we had a bunch of fun. It's like a saltwater lake. The, the reality for me, though, is I was like, look, the ocean is not a neutral zone. The river is not a neutral zone. The current is there, and we have to fight to make progress towards the thing we want. Life is an adversarial zone, and we have to fight to hold our current position, much less make progress. The current of culture is always pulling. And see, the danger of culture isn't its violence, but its subtlety. I didn't realize we're a mile and a half from the car. We're just doing our thing, and we looked up and went, whoa. And the ocean is violence, but it wasn't the violence of the ocean that took us. It was the subtlety of the current that slowly just pulled that bottom of that kayak over. It's the danger of the slippery slope. It's by the time you realize you're on it, it's too late. So I look up slippery slope a few weeks ago when I'm preparing for the sermon, and I was really excited to get some great examples and illustrations of slippery slope. And what I found is that modern philosophy considers the slippery slope to be a fallacy. And I went, well, that's too bad. We have some smart people in here. We have PhDs in philosophy. And if I say that slippery slope is a thing, they're going to call me out on it and be like, actually, that's a well-known fallacy. And what they're saying is doing A doesn't lead necessarily to Z. It's just A. That you can't correlate the two just because someone keeps going A, B, C, D, E and ends at Z. It doesn't mean A got them there. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's fair. They would mock the Billy Graham rule. There's a lot of a lot of nice cartoons on the internet that you can go and find that mock the Billy Graham rule, this idea that a, a man shouldn't go and have a, a private lunch with a woman he's not married to, or he shouldn't be riding alone in the car with her. Mike Pence got rung up on this, and everybody had a field day because Mike Pence says he doesn't have one-on-one meetings with uh, women by themselves, behind closed doors. It's not something he does. What they, the fallacy would say, they would go, well, look, that's dumb because having lunch with a woman does not lead to an affair. Okay, so I said, that's, that's fair. We won't call it a slippery slope. What we're going to do is call it a a current in the stream that we're in. And so if we fail to contend for the thing that we know to be true, if I fail to contend for my marriage in that way, and not everybody needs to live by this rule, so if you don't, don't hear me saying this is a must. But I adopt it, and I absolutely live by it. There's a reason we have glass doors on the office. There's a reason that any time I can, I put as many people around as possible, that I try not to have one-on-one meetings with women, I try not to have one-on-one lunch with women, that uh, my wife is very clear on this. I've said, hey, this is the way I'm going to honor you, the way I'm going to protect us is, is by doing my very best to hold to this rule. And if there's ever going to be, I had a 66-year-old assistant. My assistant in Texas when I was a pastor was mid to late 60s. And um, she was no uh, marital threat, I will say. Sweet woman, but no one was worried about her. And uh, before I'd go to, we'd go to lunch, we'd have a meeting off-site, and I'd call my wife just to make the point. I'd go, hey, uh, Mo and I are going to go, to lunch. Do you mind if we ride together? And she'd laugh and be like, come on. She could be your grandmother. And I'm like, well, she could. She's not. Do you mind? No, that'll be fine. And so we would. But it was a rule set in place. It's guardrail set on my marriage for a purpose. And so even if there isn't a slippery slope, there is a current to the stream. And if we fail to contend, if we set the paddle down long enough, the result is we drift into trouble more quickly than we realize. We drift into license. We drift into perversion of good things. So Jude says, if we're to live a grace life, This Jesus life, 
this existence of beauty and mercy, we have to paddle constantly to hold on to it. We have to work at it to get it. But you can't work it alone. If the current is stronger than you, you can't work that alone. These seals who put their rubber raft into the Pacific Ocean, they can't, they can't paddle the ocean alone. They can't overwhelm the current alone. So Admiral McRaven would say you need to find some good people to paddle with. Jude would say, church, you need to contend together. Verse 4 says certain individuals will slip in. Certain individuals will slip in. And the implication in Jude's writing is that individuals might slip in, but the church as a whole can overcome it when they're together. The culture will continue to pull and progress is then in contending and paddling with others. Why? Because when you're weak, they pick you up. When you are weary, they paddle extra. When you are in tragedy, they can carry the weight. They shout. They carry us when we've put our paddle down. We call it community. In a really specific application of it, we call it community group. We have people that are in community group and have experienced some of that. Gosh, I went through something. I never knew I needed it, but they were there for me. We have others that would say, you know, I don't really need that right now. I'm okay. I actually got my paddle. I'm doing well. I don't need that. And the challenge for those of us who might not need to be in community right now is not that it, it's for everyone. It's not the, the way the Bible has said we have to do things. It's our best opportunity at a vehicle to make real community and real Christian life happen. But the Bible never says you have to be in a community group. I would argue, though, if you are really healthy, you are the best person in a community group. Because it isn't about you don't join the group when you have the need. You join the group so that all of the needs get covered. Just because you don't need it today doesn't mean that someone doesn't need you. Sir Admiral McRaven tells another story in the same chapter. I will just call it the parachute story. You may never forget it because I read it and I can't forget it. He says that on a really routine parachuting uh, practice trip, they are all, all these seals are lined up in the back of the plane. And the big gate of the plane opens up and I think they're about 10,000 feet and they're supposed to deploy a parachute at 5,000 and so you have a short free fall and then you, you pull and you land safely and there's a drop zone and they're all trying to hit the target. And so it's a pretty normal thing. They're getting ready and the, the person in the plane says, go, 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 go. And they start jumping at their regular intervals. And he says, so everything's going pretty smoothly. He's right at his body. He's no longer spinning. And he, he looks down and he sees his worst nightmare, which is one of the other jumpers has slipped under him directly and has pulled his parachute. And he says, so at 120 miles an hour, that parachute hits him in midair, which sends him spinning out of control, which tangles all of his own cords up. And so now he has cords wrapped around, around both legs and he's missed his own chance to pull his ripcord. He has a pre-ripcord that kind of pulls itself, so it's a small parachute that's slowing him down, but it'll never stop him. And so now he, he realizes when he finally gets uh, his wits about him, he says it probably concussed him in the first moment, is he has two options. He can either um, not pull the ripcord and crash to his death at 120 miles an hour, or if he pulls the ripcord, knowing that the, everything's tied around his legs, it will absolutely be the most painful thing you can imagine. He goes, but I, I don't have a choice. It's live or die. So he says, I pull the ripcord, I feel it eject, and then he says, as soon as I feel air hit the parachute, the most excruciating pain imaginable, as both legs get ripped from the side, that there's a five-inch separation in his pelvis as it just gets obliterated by the force of these uh, ropes pulling at each of his legs. He eventually lands in a pretty tough crash, miles from the, to the drop zone, the ambulance finds him, they take him into surgery. The next day, they let him know that there are about a thousand muscles in your pelvic and abdominal area, and every single one of them had been ripped 
from the body and was sort of loose. He takes surgeries and steel rods in places you don't want steel rods. And he says what was so remarkable is that undergoing this as a seal, that's the end of my seal career. Because your physical condition is everything. And if you don't have peak physical condition and you will get tested regularly, then you are no longer a seal. And he said, somehow, through loopholes and special favors, he says, all my friends, all my seal friends were with me. And they kept with me. And they fought for me. And they got me waivers and loopholes. And they got me through it to where I could finally get back to perfect health or good enough health to pass the test and remain a seal. It was my greatest life's dream to never fail out of that. And they stayed with me. And for him, it, it brought him back to early SEAL training. When sick or exhausted, then others would carry the raft for him. That in his own weariness, there was others to, to do the heavy lifting. And so by 2011, when he not only orchestrates, but then uh, leads after designing the entire raid to get bin Laden, he's celebrated as this great hero. And he says, you know what? That doesn't happen if there weren't people to paddle for me back in my day of need. In our weakest and our most vulnerable moments, we don't paddle alone. This is what Jude is saying, and it's what we're saying in our modern culture, that if we are to overcome the current that is against us, we have to paddle together, that others will contend for us and with us, and we will contend for them. In their moments, we will be ready, paddles at our side. In our moments, they will be the same. So we have an amazing faith and a gift of grace and love to steward with our days. And so the challenge as we start a new year is to do it actively and do it together. And so I don't know what that means for you exactly. Maybe your challenge today is you need to pick up your paddle again. You realize you've been drifting with the current and you need to begin to paddle again. Maybe you realize this community group is a thing you might want to be a part of, that you might need to be a part of, whether you're in need today or not. Maybe you need to be there for someone else. Or maybe there's someone who, just in saying this, God has put on your heart. And you go, gosh, this person could really use someone to help. This person could really use another paddle in the boat. And I've been avoiding it and trying to avoid it any way possible, but gosh, yeah, I think that may be my person. Whatever it is that God is impressing upon your heart, our job is to do the Christian life well and to do it together. And in order to do that, we have to paddle together. We have to do it as one unit with one mission. And if we do that, what we find is we make incredible progress and we actually make world-changing, life-transforming progress. So I'm excited to do it with you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are gracious to us. Father, you give us beauty and mercy. You allow for um, deep joy in life. God, in the good times, we uh, would admit that we take for granted how good you are. And in the bad times, Father, we curse that we're not better connected or we feel isolated, we feel alone. Lord, I would pray that uh, in this season, in this, even this day, that we would actively uh, fight against those two poles. We would find ourselves in, uh, right in the center of your will, that we would find ourselves paddling together. Those of us that have given up, that have gone uh, solo, that have become isolated, that we would recognize, Father, that we need community. Whether that's through a community group, or rekindling an old uh, collective of people that we once did life with. Father, I pray for those in the room that have long uh, been drifting. Lord, would you convict hearts and uh, open pathways that we might pick up our paddles again. That we might see culture for what it is. We might recognize the threats around us and we might recognize that uh, the striving is not for saving, but the striving is to uh, make the path, the sanctification path with you. 
Ultimately, Father, we're grateful for Jesus who uh, faced the ultimate upstream current, the ultimate pain and the ultimate anguish, faced it for us, gave his life, set us free. Father, I pray that we would live in those beautiful, liberating restrictions, that, God, we would embrace the guardrails of your beauty and your grace. And, Father, we would chase with everything we have the life that you've set aside for us. We love you. We thank you for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.